The sermon text this morning comes from Ephesians 4, 8 through 16. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth? That he, might, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marcia. One of our goals here at Redeemer is to restore the beauty of the church to this present age. When I, when I say church, I'm not speaking primarily of our church, Redeemer, but the concept, the theological concept of the church that has existed in a multitude of variety of contexts throughout the ages. There are many places in the world, this is very encouraging, many places in the world today where the church is actually doing very well. Places like Southeast Asia, Brazil, Africa, the church is growing, advancing. But I'm not saying anything that is shocking to you this morning when I say that, at least here in the West, the church is not doing very well. There was a very slow decrease in church attendance, and then after COVID and the events of 2020, that has really accelerated, and the church is now limping along. Secularism, Obergefell, pluralism are now all winning the day. Now, we, we want to avoid the air of just thinking the, the past was always better. I mean, th th there's a lot of issues in the past as well. Child labor, Jim Crow laws. I mean, th there's things in the past that were also really bad. There's no golden age. There's no period of time where, you know, heaven was more on earth than other periods of time. So we want to avoid that error. But there certainly was a time in our country where the church was recognized not just as morally neutral, but was actually recognized as being a good thing. That if you wanted to run for office, if you listed the church that you were a member of, that, that was a good thing, likely even got you a few more votes. The institution of the church was understood as being really good for a culture. But the tide has certainly changed. If you were to list that you are a member of a church on your resume today, that would not be a plus but likely it would be understood as a negative. Most people understand the church in the West as this dusty, old, outdated institution of a bygone era, an institution that now many people are saying is an institution that is even built on laws that suppress and hate people. 
In our very modern age, it is not as though atheism is actually on the rise. We can often think that, but the percent of atheists has only grown by about 1% in the last decade. It's roughly 5% of the American population. So there's not many tried and true card-carrying atheists. What is growing is a group of people called the nuns. And by nuns, I'm not talking about Catholic ladies. I, I don't think those nuns are growing. By nuns, I, it's N-U-N-S, the nothings, people that believe nothing. These people are vaguely spiritual. They're not atheists. They're not Christians. They're just kind of spiritually nothing. And the nuns, even though they believe nothing, what they are really against is any form of institutions, and especially if that institution is a religion. And that is the predominant thinking of our culture today, vaguely spiritual, but certainly against the institution of the church. The goal for this morning, which is Paul's goal of this text in his letter that he has written to the Ephesians, is that we would begin to rediscover the glory of the church. That we would see that the church as a gathered, organic, institutional people of God. That this is not something that just was invented in Europe. This isn't like the monarchy where we can have debates about have we outgrown the monarchy? What does the monarchy look like in this present age? It's just a European idea. That we would begin to see the glory of the church, rediscover the vitality of what the church means for us. I have three points for us this morning. These points are going to build on one another. So this is a building sermon, a building argument. Point number one, we're going to see the victory. Point number two, we're going to see the gift. And finally, put those together, the victorious gift of the glory of the church. Three points, but we will start with victory. Look with me at verses eight and nine in your order of worship. Now, these verses are, are very tricky to understand. They are tricky both textually and theologically. Paul here is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18. So I'm going to read for you what it says in Psalm 68. And you'll notice that it's almost identical, but in one place a little different. And so in Psalm 68, it reads, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So Psalm 68 is a psalm of David. In a time of trial for David, he's remembering all the ways that God in the past has acted like a king, that God has always overcome his enemies. And then he ends this psalm with this great line, would ascend up to Zion, there's going to be a parade, this triumphant procession. As the king is going to enter into the city, there's going to be singing and shouting, and the people are going to be offering up their gifts to the victorious king, the receiving of gifts for this king. Think of New York City, known for ticker tape parade. So after World War II, the soldiers are coming back, ticker tape is, is, is coming down, and there's this hero's welcome for the brave soldiers that went off to fight in World War II. Or think of the New York Yankees that have just won the World Series. New York City, they're coming back, ticker tape, and all these praise and shouts are offered up to the winners, to the victors. 
Psalm 68 says that the victor, the king, would receive his gifts. Now, here's what's textually so tricky about this. Because look with me at verse 8 in your bulletin. Paul is quoting Psalm 68, but he writes, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he, this king, gave gifts to men. So this he is Jesus. And what we see is, is Jesus as the king. He is ascending. He's leading the captives. He is victorious. But the difference is that Jesus does not receive the gifts from men, but he gave the gifts to men. So in Psalm 68, the king receives here in Ephesians 4, the king, Jesus, gives. So the, the, the question, and there's a lot of literature on this, why does Paul quote Psalm 68, but then change one word? So textually, this is difficult to figure out. Theologically, this is also tricky to figure out because of verse 9. You read verse 9, and at first it sounds as if Jesus descends into literal hell so as to set people free. This is the teaching of of some branches of the Christian church. But the problem is, is that we know that on the cross, as Jesus is hanging by the thief, He tells the thief next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Meaning as as soon as Jesus dies, he's not going to hell to set people free. As soon as Jesus dies, he is going to be in the spiritual presence of heaven. He's going to be back with his father. And and this thief is going to be there as well. Jesus on the cross says, it's finished. That, That means he doesn't have any more work to do. So this is tricky to figure out. What does Jesus mean by this, the descent? The descent of Jesus here to the lower regions is the descent of Jesus to earth. So so Jesus is, is, is from heaven, and he needs to descend to become like one of us. And as he descends, he lives the life that we can never live, He lives a life of complete obedience to God. There's no sin. There's no failures. And he dies the death that we deserve to die. So after Jesus is laid into the ground for three days, he would later rise from the grave, and then he would later triumphantly ascend back into heaven. So that's theologically what's going on right here. Psalm 68 is about the victorious king ascending the hill to Zion And as he is ascending the hill, he is receiving the praise and gifts of the masses. In a similar but different way, Jesus arrives on earth. He descends to be like one of us. And as he descends to be like one of us, he he wins the war. He wins that back, his people who were lost. And at his ascension, which is his rising back up into heaven... This is the moment where where Jesus, like the king in Psalm 68, he should have the praises, he should be receiving the gifts. This is the moment where Jesus can finally pop his collar, show off. This is the parade. And yet here's the difference. Give. In his ascension, he does not receive, but give. Why the difference? 
You see, Jesus is like the kings of the past, but oh, he is so much better. So much better that even when Jesus has the right to receive, he is still giving. He's a, he's a different kind of king. Jesus, in his ascension, has the right to receive the gift, but even when he has that right, he keeps on giving. He is a giving king. You know, there's times when, when I come home from work, it's been a very long day at work. I come home and I say, Vanessa, it's been a long day. Would you mind if I just take it easy for the night, just sit on the couch? I, I could give some more. I could help with homework. I could help put the kids to bed. You know, I could help with ma- making dinner. But, but I, I'm just wiped out. I have nothing left to give. And Vanessa is always very gracious and says, yes, of course, I understand. You have the right to take a break. You see, people like us, there's a limit to how much we can give. After a long stretch of work, any normal person will come to his or her limits. But not Jesus. After all his work, after all the work of giving, praying, preaching, suffering, healing, Loving, after all the work of staring the great enemies of life straight into their eyes and defeating them. Jesus, his work is to stare at death and defeat it. The work of Jesus is to stare at sin, defeat it. The work of Jesus is to stare at the corruption of this world and defeat it. After all that work, Jesus finally gets to go home and rest. This is the victory prayed. And yet even at his victory prayed to go back home to rest. Jesus keeps on giving. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. Even when he has the right to receive, he keeps on giving. And so that leads us really to to the point of this message. What is the gift of this victorious king? How might we summarize what the ascended king is now giving back to us? So again, this is Jesus in his victory lap. He's conquered everything. He's done all the work. And Jesus has one final thing to give before he goes back home. How might we figure out what this gift is? This is going to be a quick summary, but look with me at verse 11. This is going to summarize these three verses, what the gift is. Verse 11 is talking about different leaders in the church, pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles. This is institutional type language. There are people in a body that have very specific roles to keep the institution moving forward. Then you get to verse 13, working together until we attain the unity of the faith and mature manhood. This is very relational language. Then you get to verses 15 and 16. We see that all this is happening as as one body with Jesus Christ as a head. This is language of being united together, institutional, united, relational language. What is the gift that the ascended king wants to give back to his people? The answer, Jesus is giving to us the church. Our relational lives together in the context of an institution, all of us moving in the exact same direction, this mystical union that is spiritual, it's relational, it's also theological, 
all of that is the final gift of Jesus. Jesus descends to win his people back to himself. And then as Jesus ascends back into heaven, he gives us back to us. That's the glory of the church. It is a gift. At worst, the culture sees the church as this, this worthless, outdated institution. But even Christians, even God's people, often see the church as a, as a, as a boring sense of duty. But both are so far short of what Paul is describing here. The church is the gift of the victorious king. One final gift that Jesus will give. And he gives us each other. The gift of each other. The gift of being resurrected people together. I'm not not really sure how this all works. But every church that I have ever visited in my life always seems to have the same church scent. I'm not not sure how it works, but but all churches, somehow they they, they seem to smell the same. It's not not a great scent, if, if we're being honest. It's some combination of cardboard and felt from the Sunday school classrooms, the smell of leftover potluck food, musty carpet, and then a gas stove. And you mix all that together, and that is what a church smells like. Church, church smell. It's not Yankee Candle. It's not rushing to push this in their, their, their spring lineup. But that smell, even for all its oddity and uniqueness, is the beauty of God and his people being together. The cardboard and the felt. It's the older saints on their knees teaching the youngest members the beautiful truths of the gospel. The smell of the leftover potlucks, the, the, the memory of all God's people that are so different, all shoved into a church basement, bringing casseroles and bringing salads, and the kids are running around and the babies are licking the floors. And it's not very organized, but it's beautiful because we're together. The smell of the, the musty carpets, it's not the best carpet, but you, you remember what went into buying that carpet of families that were financially grinding and sacrificing so that there might be some carpet for the young bride, the, the daughter of the church, to walk down the aisle on her wedding day. It, it's, it's not perfect. Sometimes it's even a little stinky, but it's nostalgic because that scent is the scent of the beauty of God's resurrected people being together. There's a phrase that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. The idea is that friends are special, but that there's something more special about your family because your family will last forever. That's the church. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your church family. This is just who God has brought together. And for all our difference and for all of our quirks, we're together, united by Jesus Christ. And that is a gift that Jesus is giving to us. For being completely honest, were it not for the victory of Jesus Christ, it is highly unlikely that us together would be friends. We're, we're, we're very different people. We have different interests. We have different backgrounds, different ages, 
different lifestyles, different paychecks. We have different colors of skins. We're from different neighborhoods. Were it not for Jesus, it is highly unlikely that we would be friends, let alone calling each other brother and sister and giving hugs. But here we are together. It is a beautiful gift, the, the musty carpet, leftover potluck smell and all. That's the beauty of being together as God's people. We're, we're currently teaching the, the leadership class. This was brought up in the last leadership class by Clint. It's from Herman Bovink, who is a, a Dutch theologian. And his concept is that we cannot image God alone. You remember from the days of creation, on the sixth day is the day that God created male and female. And it is male and female together and then with all their offspring that show God's image. Think of God himself. He is, he is one and yet he is also three. He is united and yet he is also distinct. Therefore, when we are distinct but also together, only then do we image God. So if the gospel is the redemptive work of renewing in you the image of God, that means part of the renewing process is going to be us together. It is a gift. The person that is sitting next to you in the pew is a son or a daughter bought with the blood of Jesus given to you as a gift. And without that person in your life, you are going to image God less. This is the glory of the church. And that is our final point. The glory of the church. Verse 14, for those that are not connected to the body, they are susceptible to being tossed to and fro by the world. You see, this is the gift. Jesus has purchased the people. And if you are not with his people, if you are not in his gift, you are going to be tossed to and fro in life. Life is so hard. And you are hearing all sorts of views and philosophies. They're coming at you a mile a minute. And unless you are anchored in life, you are going to be beat up and swallowed by the world. The glory of the church is that in this ark, you are kept safe from the world. In the Dutch Reformed tradition, you go to a lot of old churches, and it looks like an ark upside down, an old wood ceiling. And it is because in the safety of the ark, in the safety of the church, only then can you withstand the judgment of the world. This body, this institution is God's way of anchoring you in life. You desperately need to be here. It's, it's, it's very clear that if you are not here, according to, the, to these verses, you will be tossed to and fro in life. That is the big question. How are you going to make it to the end? Some of you are older. Some of you are younger. Some of you are college students. Some of you are in high school, even younger. So you might have 10, you might have 80 years in front of you. The big question for your life is, how, Lord Jesus, am I going to make it to the end? And one of the great resources, one of the great gifts that God gives to his people to help you make it to the end is the gift of this, the body of Christ together. It's been very sad, at least here in the United States for the past half century, the language, especially even amongst Christian, has, has become, 
You should be a, a very spiritual person, very spiritual, va- vaguely spiritual. You, you, you should love Jesus. You should have, you know, quiet times. You should meet with Jesus. But, but, but as for the actual church, you, you can take or leave it. If, if we're being honest, you, you can even just do church by yourself at home. Bedside Baptist, it's a great church. It's the only church you'll ever be on time for because it's just you. As long as you love Jesus, you don't actually need the church. Let's just be clear. It makes very little sense to say that you love Jesus if you do not actually love what he loves. In love, he came to ransom a people. So it does not make sense to say, I love Jesus more than anything, But then when it comes to his people that Jesus loves, you don't love them. And the result of this vague spiritual thinking, love for Jesus, but apathy towards the church has developed increasingly weak Christians. Everyone today is so panicked about the state of the church. The church is losing and people aren't following Jesus. Well, that's what we've been saying for 50 years. Why are we so surprised that if we devalue the church, we end up with a generation that devalues the church? The church is God's plan for us to come and be strengthened. And if not, then you will be tossed to and fro. So how how do we put all three of these points together? Jesus Christ descended to earth for a singular purpose. Yes, there are other things that he accomplished in his life and death, but there is one overarching, uniting purpose. Jesus did not descend to literal hell, but he descended to earth with the singular goal of winning a people back to himself. That is what Jesus has accomplished. And as Jesus descended and won the war, he then ascended back into heaven. And the gift of his ascension is that he gives us us. Remember, that the main theme for Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that we are in him. Because we are in him and he is in us, by giving us the gift of us, he's as we're giving us him because we are in him. And as we press into him, we are pressing into us. As we press into us, we are pressing into him. This is the mystical beauty, glory of the church, this organic process That as we do life together, we are actually built up in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are strengthened. Two final points of application as we move to a close. Two points of application. Application point number one. This is all why Redeemer is so committed to planting churches. One of the questions that is asked of Redeemer sometimes is, is, is why is there such an emphasis on church planting? Would it not be a lot easier and would it not be a lot cheaper just to raise up pastors or evangelists to go to different parts of the city? They can do do Bible studies. They can do evangelism. They can do surveys. People would come to know the Lord. Isn't it enough just to have people become Christians? Why not just have more campus ministries? Or why don't we just do more community-based Bible studies? Why do we have to go through the hard work of actually planting a church? Couldn't we do a lot more effectively 
if we just focused on evangelism without the hassle of pastors and fundraising and worship services and liturgy and bylaws and elders and deacons and children's ministries and the hundreds of things that go into planting a church. Yesterday, I drove to East Lansing with Noah Van Ort, who is planting a church in Sterling Heights, and I drove with Shiv Mutha Kumar, who is planting in Novi. This is our, our, our Presbyterian meeting, so all the pastors and elders from Michigan and northern Indiana. And I drove up with, with Steve and Shiv, and I can promise you that their lives would be infinitely easier if they were here just to do evangelism and not to actually plant a church. And so wh- why actually plant churches? It's because of what we see here. Certainly evangelism is essential but it's not enough. You need the church, officers, institution, words, sacraments, Sunday morning. You need the funny sense of the building because this place is where the kingdom of God is most clearly seen and felt. Now, the, the, the church is not the kingdom. That, that's the work of Jesus alone. But the church is the place where the kingdom most clearly breaks through. So yes, absolutely, we want lots and lots of aggressive evangelism around Metro Detroit, but we always want the evangelism that leads towards planting local embassies where the kingdom of God shines brightly. That's point number one, plant churches. Number two, maybe more importantly, do not be the kind of Christian that mocks or looks down upon what Jesus has purchased. It is very trendy today to mock and demean the church. Now, yes, in the outside skeptical world, that's always going to happen. We understand it. That's fine. But it has also become very trendy for Christians to mock the church, to be so spiritual that they are somehow above the church, very in love with Jesus, But then to go on and say, well, the the church is outdated, it's very stuffy, it's very formal, I don't like it. I'm I'm just going to do, my my church is the coffee shop, $7 latte, I'm going to Instagram my church, hashtag it, me and Jesus at the coffee shop, or my church is out in the forest, or my church is Sunday morning yoga. I don't need the church, I just need me and Jesus, that's all I want. I am more spiritual than the church. Just say this nicely. That is a very condescending attitude considering the cost of what it took for Jesus to give you this gift. This church, and again, I'm not talking about Redeemer, I'm talking about the church around the world, the church that transcends cultures and ages. The risen Christ has given you a gift, it is a blood bought ransom gift. It is a gift that took thorns and nails, a cross, hanging on the cross, bearing the full weight of the curse. The church is not a costly, it is a costly gift. It is not cheap. So then to say, well, well, thanks Jesus, but I'll pass. Just just one one of my number one rules in life is I I just want to be for whatever Jesus is, is for. Now, whatever Jesus says is good, I'm just, even if I don't understand it, I'm always going to side with him. Jesus has given us this gift. 
Take him at his word. Embrace it. Love it. The church is far from a crusty, old, dated European institution. The church is the crown jewel of Jesus Christ's redemption. It is his means for strengthening you. It is his means for blessing you. Jesus descended and ascended as a victorious king to give you a gift. That's what you see right here. Us together, a relational institution. Don't avoid it. Embrace it. Love it. And give yourself to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you did not just save individuals and separate people, but that you actually saved a people. Men, women, young, old, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Norwegian, Brazilian, all different types of people that you have saved us and you've brought us into your family and you have given us a place where the family can come together for family meals and family services. You have given us the gift of the church. Father, I pray that in each one of us that we would love what you have given to us. And I pray for the culture at large. I pray that there would be a renewal of a love for the church, that people would see the glory of what you have given, that people would stop mocking the church, but they would love it and serve alongside of it. Lord, bless this church, bless the work of the church around all of Detroit and around the state of Michigan and around the United States to the very ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.